Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 88. All right, guys, welcome. Uh, I need to apologize to our listeners if the audio for me is a little weird this week because I'm in a hotel room recording. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems okay. Got pillows over the the uh, little vert. <sighs> Are you pillows. in like a little pillow fort? <laughs> Sounds yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. I got pillows over the, the little heater vent thing fan. That doesn't sound but, dangerous at all. <laughs> no, the heat's turned off. It's just the fan keeps going. Huh. Yeah. But should should be alright. So let's uh let's get in into this episode here. You guys been having a good week? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, last week uh, ran into an issue with CocoaPods. Apparently they dropped support for old pod specs um, and anything prior to 1.0 earlier this month. And so my build server started failing and had to dig into that and found out that uh, I either have to upgrade to the latest CocoaPods or uh, fortunately there's a workaround to support the old specs. I haven't had a chance to validate whether or not that can coexist uh, with the new specs as well. I think it can. Um, but yeah, so some pods that haven't or will never get updated uh, to support CocoaPods 1.0 or greater uh, need this workaround uh, to get the old spec so you can actually continue the build. It seems like it'd be really hard to coexist with something else because... Uh, I think they basically have you check out an older version of the the specs repo. That's what the the workaround says, but it looks like I mean you can do your own private uh, spec repo, and uh, the .coco pods directory uh, things get put into uh, folders based on repo name. So theoretically, you can have multiple repos as long as you source them properly. But like I said, I haven't had a chance to validate that to, to make sure that it'll work properly. But it, it may be possible. Otherwise, I've got to find a workaround for this legacy project that I inherited that has uh, some fairly hefty dependencies on some old pods that aren't going to be updated anytime soon. And they have nested dependencies, so it gets, gets even nastier. Yeah, at some point, I think their client is going to have to bite the bullet on that one and pay to pay down some technical debt. Yeah, yeah, and I've I've been working on a strategy to move over to a more modern framework um, that should also improve speed and uh, reduce the amount of boilerplate code. So hopefully, I can get that worked in. It's just. Uh, uh, the project has hundreds of views, hundreds of screens. Um, there's also several hundred tests, and a lot of them, the dependency kind of is in there too. So there's a lot of code that has to be touched. So thorough, even if I can clean up a lot of the boilerplate code and get through the code changes quickly, there's still a decent amount of retesting that has to be done. Yeah, something that's that that invasive is going to require a lot of testing as well. As yeah. development, yeah. To me, that's the scariest part of it, or or the the biggest effort is 
you know, the code changes, maybe I can get those done in a couple of days, but testing is going to have to be very thorough. So do you just go and break it and wait until you got everything fixed? Or are you thinking you're going to like basically have both ways implemented at the same time and gradually do it and make sure that tests get moved over to the old version? I have a strategy where I can do this incrementally where they could coexist and that shouldn't be an issue. Um, still debating whether or not that's a good idea. Another wrinkle to this is it's a mixed code base with Objective-C and Swift. And you can find yourself into a situation where, it, depending on you know how your dependencies between classes are written, you might have Objective-C code that depends on Swift code, that it depends on Objective-C code. You might not technically have a cycle in your dependency tree, but because one has, you have to compile the Objective-C before the Swift can compile, but the Swift can't compile because, uh, or the Objective-C can't compile because it's waiting on the Swift to compile. So you end up in this weird state where you can't build anymore. Uh, so you got to think about dependencies from that perspective as well. That does sound really fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am debating whether or not it was a good idea to introduce Swift uh, on a project this size and kind of leave it leave it in a in a mixed state. You know, well, my I, goal is to make the bottom layer, all the model and networking layer, Swift code, and then only the Objective C would depend on the Swift code and not so much the other way around. In your defense, Apple said that they were going to stabilize things a lot sooner than they were. And that's that's probably part of the reason it's did never get to a happy place is because you were having to constantly deal with the change in addition to getting it all to work like you want in addition yeah. to the other stuff. Yeah, and there's this whole kind of pre-compiler step that creates the um, the Objective C header file for for the Swift the Swift.h file uh, that has all your headers, uh, so Objective C can work with it. And usually, the error that you run into is that that file doesn't exist uh, because it couldn't build it because it, it got into this cycle. Uh, so I, I've done a decent job of kind of managing that up till now, but it's one of those things I can't just arbitrarily go in and convert everything because I could introduce a cycle. So it has to be done fairly uh, methodically. Well, is this app using frameworks yet? Because you might be able to segment things out a little bit better with, with those. Yeah, yeah, and I think that would be a better approach moving. I could move that model layer, um, kind of the business layer into a framework and that could be 100% Swift and the rest of the app doesn't necessarily even need to know that or vice versa. So it's, I think that would help. Um, that kind of gets back into the, I, I can't use frameworks with Cocoa Pods right now because there are two pods in particular that haven't been updated uh, to work with frameworks and the committers don't seem to at this point have any intention of doing so. So how old of a version of CocoaPods are you having to run? I'm on 0.38.2. Oh, okay. So it's not, not too bad, but that's where things uh, start getting, that's kind of the, the top. Once you go to three, nine, I think, um, I think that's where the CocoaPods team introduced the breaking change that 
got rid of, I think, recursive headers or something like that, which was requested by the Mono team, oh, which is kind of interesting. So they introduced that, and that broke a few pods for me. Yeah. At least until the pod authors could get it updated. But, I mean, to some degree, that's why they never called it a 1.0 release, because they wanted to be able to make changes like that. Right. You're essentially playing with betaware at that point and had to move along with it. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember when we started using CocoaPods, but it was pretty early on. (laughs) I think we've been using it for a good six plus years. And it's been a little bit of a love hate relationship over the years, but, um, you know, it took a long time to get to a one Oh release. It was very painful managing dependencies manually before that. So, you know, I was thankful when we introduced Google pods, but it comes at a price. Yeah. If you want to bring in ex- external code as a dependency, you need to really have some kind of dependency manager. Now, I, I know there are groups out there that don't bring in de- external code as a dependency as a general rule. And yeah, there's, there's think- varying philosophies on that one. Yeah. And I continue to kind of hold the belief that you should keep it to a minimum and every dependency needs to justify itself. You know, especially if you're pulling in an entire framework in order to get like one function or one utility you know, it probably isn't worth it. And I certainly don't, uh, I tend to shy away from dependencies that then in turn have other dependencies. You end up pulling in a whole tree of dependencies into your project, whether you need them or not. Well, you could easily pull in two different networking stacks and oh yeah, yeah. who knows what else. And, you know, CocoaPods and Maven and, and a few of the, the other dependency managers will try and deal with the transitive dependencies for you, but it, it still can get a little hairy. And I think if you're building something to be reusable, having other third-party dependencies is, is not ideal. And I think like, you know, that's one of the complaints about React Native is you can end up with like 600 dependencies because they're all a bunch of little utilities that depend on other utilities. And even though you might only specify half a dozen dependencies, uh, just the way node is built to be a lot of really small libraries, you can end up with hundreds. Yeah. And that's on project start before you even really get the hello world. As soon as you start a new project in react native, that's what you end up with the 600 dependencies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I tend to go the other way. I tend to try and keep it in the single digits and only bring them in if they're absolutely necessary. And if you can, you know, if you just need a small part of it, you can fork it or, or just bring in that piece that you need. Or even just re-implement it. If it's that yeah. small. Yeah. It's not, probably not that tricky. Yeah. You can just re-implement maybe point back in your comments at the, at the header in the header of the file to say that this is based on this code from this URL. And of course, make sure you're not going to violate any kind of copyright by copyright licenses when you're doing that. But yeah, if it's small, it's probably not worth the headache. So it looks like Apple is going on vacation towards the end of the year. Yeah, this is their annual 
week-long shutdown. And I was actually kind of hoping that this wasn't going to be the case this year. I was hoping that with the review time improvement that more of it's been automated and that maybe some of it could continue to operate during the holidays. But uh, now apparently they're, they're going to shut down again between December 23rd and the 27th. So it's just five days. Um, what's, what's interesting is Apple is getting ready to release new versions of macOS, tvOS, and iOS all around the same time, uh, shortly before the shutdown. So yeah, hopefully it doesn't impact anybody. It should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> They've been well, doing some seriously rapid-fire beta releases these past couple of days. I yeah. think uh, as of this recording, iOS beta 6 was just uh, released. Right. And beta you know, we could see another one before the end of the week. I don't know. I didn't even know 6 was out. Oh, crap. I need to get that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're out of date already. I updated on Friday. And Seriously? Yeah, I don't even think they can get through get things through QA that fast. That's Yeah. And I, I think with tvOS and iOS, the main focus is this new TV app that they promised in December. Um, with that also comes single sign-on. Yeah, but, but I'm not sure about macOS. I, you know, presumably a lot of that is more in support of of the new laptops, new MacBook Pros, and the Touch Bar. But I haven't really been paying attention to what's in the beta for that. Yeah, neither have I. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of bug fixes for those devices. People are having all all sorts of like first generation issues. It seems like, but hopefully that stuff gets ironed out. I know. Uh, one of my business partners has one of the new Touch Bar MacBook Pros, and uh, he was having issues with it that were fixed by graphics card issues that were fixed with the beta. Uh, so we'll okay. see. And we've got two uh, on their way from China right now, and they haven't shown up yet. Mine Should seems to work fine, though I don't know if maybe the battery life is not so good like people have been reporting. But that's mostly based on my anecdotal evidence of playing Civilization VI on it. I really wouldn't expect a game that intense to last that long on a battery. So. Well, I, I've uh, looked at some of the explanations, and I don't know if they're right, but uh, Marco Armet just did a video review. I guess he's getting into YouTube stuff, uh, but of the new MacBook Pro. And he had a pretty like simple explanation of it. Basically, um, these new processors are getting more efficient, so they make it thinner by shrinking the battery, but under load, it uses the same or almost the same amount of energy as the older generation chips were. So if you're just browsing the web, your battery life is pretty good or about the same as it was before. But once you start doing, you know, things that pros would do to, <laughs> to be kind of smarmy, then your battery life actually seems worse uh, just just because of the fact that the battery is smaller than it used to be. Mm. So no Xcode on the plane, no uh, gaming on in the airport or anything like that then? At least not for long. You could always, you know, plug a USB port into the into the jack that your seat have if you're on a newer <laughs> plane. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. If, but it's not going to output near enough. You won't get 80 watts, but... No. but but it'll it'll combat the the faster battery loss somewhat. Sure, people would look at you weird if you had your laptop plugged in that way. I don't know if they would. It's a plugged in laptop. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> if only our iPhones had USB C, then we could uh, yeah. 
That's coming in the eight. We could we could charge <laughs> off of our iPhone, give the <laughs> the power back to the computer and all that stuff. Yeah. Did you? I did see a someone tweeted the other day. They plugged both ends of a USB C cable into the USB C ports on their MacBook Pro, and it said it was charging. So I'm sure that's an awesome way to kill your battery. <laughs> Just cycle it through itself. That I uh, yeah that. Somebody took a big risk there. I feel like maybe your laptop would just explode at that point. Yeah. Has anybody tried plugging in multiple chargers? What? Of the the four chargers? I think the spec only lets you charge from one, so you can... Okay. So uh, whatever one has the most power, whatever it'll pull from. But they forgot that you could charge yourself, so I'm not sure what exactly (laughs) the results of that are. I'm yeah. sure wh- whoever tr- did not try very long. Don't try this at home. That's for sure. But it is interesting that this is all USB-C. Uh, and just having mine now for a little while, I've come across a few things. Like, one, all those flash drives that we've been buying for years <laughs> that use the, the old USB-A interface, worthless, unless you have your adapter and and two, like, there's so much power infrastructure based on that old style plug. You, you get in an airport and they have USB-A chargers in the seats. And yeah. that's now obsolete. And, you know, for a long time, you could buy these outlet plates that had your standard outlet, your standard electrical outlet, as well as USB-A ports on it. Not so useful anymore either. But that's that. That's the wave of the future, I suppose. And I remember thinking when those things came out that yeah, those will be good for you know five, ten years, and then what? Somebody's gonna move into your house fifty years from now and go, "Mom, what's that port for?" And they won't have any idea. Like the phone jack. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing as a phone jack. <laughs> it just happened a little quicker. It, another cool part. I did read an article on Medium that. In a lot of ways, that this new MacBook is much more um, standards compliant than previous Macs because before you had the MagSafe charger, but now you could pick up a charger from anywhere that does a USB-C and outputs the right amount of watts, and you're fine. Say you forgot your power charger, your power adapter, and Somebody next to you has a new Dell laptop. You could probably use theirs if it's chargeable by USB-C. And if you're an Android developer, your phone probably has USB-C too. So you could use your phone charging cable, or if you forgot your phone's charging cable, you can use your computer's charging cable to charge your phone or whatever. Oh, yeah. It seems like this would be an awesome computer for an Android developer, if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Except I don't think Android Studio supports the touch bar very well. Not like Xcode does. Not yet. Yeah, they'll get I, there, maybe. maybe. I was kind of surprised that they didn't move to USB-C when they dropped the audio jack. just seems like that would be better for the people who manufacture third-party headphones. If they, Since Android's moving towards USB-C. Ah, but listen, who it would be better for? Not Apple. The people <laughs> who make the headphones. Yeah. Apple wants the made-for-iPhone licensing fee for all of this stuff with, with Lightning, which is why... It seems unlikely that we're ever going to get a phone with, with USB-C. It's kind of a shame, but I, I mean, I think that's they've got a whole ecosystem out there of made for 
the MFI program for this kind of stuff. And uh, you, know, you were talking about the third-party power adapters. I was remembering that it was an odd number of watts, and it's the one that comes with the MacBook Pro is 61 watts, at least the 13-inch. Like, yeah. 61 just seemed like an odd number. You can and still I use think, a lower wattage one, though. It just won't charge as fast. Yeah. And then the uh, the 15-inch is 87 watts, which I think the old one was... The old MacBook Pro was 85, if I recall. Yeah, it's somewhere right in that 80, 85 range. And really, if you're going to be off by a couple, it shouldn't be a, a problem. Yeah, I just thought it was odd that it was slightly off from the previous models. But yeah, I think you're right. It doesn't, it probably doesn't have a huge impact, you know, unless you're doing something that's consuming as fast as it's charging or faster. Right. Yeah. Most of that would should not even be going into the battery at that point. It should just be running the machine. So are all your guys apps, uh, ready to go for any updates after January 1st with the application transport security requirements that are going into effect? I think I might have to spend that little holiday break updating one app. I've got a couple apps that have like one network call that isn't under SSL, um, but it should be pretty easy to update. You guys are lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the app that I spend most of my time on and everything's been HTTPS for quite a while. And we've been doing ATS for pretty much since that started. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I wish it's just the, the fact that my apps use ads for, for revenue makes, makes all this stuff really complicated because um, there's no way to get all the ad ad networks and media companies to make everything secure. If I recall correctly, there's a couple of exceptions and like a web view doesn't have to be, uh, isn't necessarily covered under ATS. You can still ask for an exception, but most likely it's going to be challenged at review time. Well, so there's a, They've added a couple new keys in iOS 10 that basically that allow you to uh, say, I don't want ATS turned on, like you said, for web views. They have another one for like local networks, I think, because apparently that's a pretty common issue with IoT things, which is a whole other issue. Um, but if you turn those keys on, those only iOS 10 knows about them. So on iOS 9, you basically have to completely disallow ATS. Um, and I think in the, there's a thread, we can put a link to it in the show notes where they talk about all that. You can see it, like how these keys got added on since, you know, since dub dub, but, uh, it sounds like, like, a a case, like, you know, having ads that you can't predict and having to disable ATS on iOS nine is a, is a thing that will be accepted. Um, our ad networks are sending out, you know, Hey, here's what you need to do, uh, for, for all the ATS stuff, you need to use these keys, and here's some suggested wording for your <laughs> App Store review and, and the expectation, even from the Apple employees that are on these threads, is is that uh, a lot of these cases are allowable and will continue to be allowable. So I think I should be fine. It's just just kind of a pain to have to do. It's kind of odd in that 
the keys are only iOS 10. So on iOS 9, you just say, oh, well, we just got to disable the whole thing. Well, <laughs> well, they, they can't retroactively go back and add those keys into the, the operating system. Tell that to Android developers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they there's not really a good way. Although Apple did some stuff, uh, you know, at the language level, like with Arc and stuff like that, where they could, or even Swift, where they, you know, package the runtime for you. But right, but that's that's more of an application level thing rather than a system level thing. Well, the 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 Arc example is more of a system level thing, but. Uh, maybe there's just some small additional library they included or something. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's it's definitely a a bummer that Apple doesn't have the ability to do that. I guess the solace that we have is that people update really quick on iOS, so <laughs> doesn't it's not too horrible that they don't ever backport stuff. Yeah, I think right now iOS 10 is at a little above 80 percent. Nine is a little under 16 percent. And then eight, I think, is under three. Yeah, that sounds about right. But we we can't support for us. iOS eight is a little bit higher. We can't drop support for eight yet, even. So we're getting yeah. there. Well, we had uh, <laughs> we had a company talk to us the other day, and it's a new app, and they wanted to support iOS eight, and they're building it themselves. They were just looking for uh, some uh, more high level review. And they were running into issues with iOS 8, and you know, we were questioning why they even need iOS 8 support when it's under three percent of the market. But, you know, they yeah. were convinced they three percent was a big enough market for them that they didn't want to ignore. There's there's certain like the larger the company, like especially if it's a add-on app for existing paying customers or something like that. I can I can see the argument for having to support super old even like with big games they support back as far as they yeah. can just yeah i think clash of clans and like supercell a lot of their apps go all the way back to like ios 5 and i think those you know somewhere around there and i think the updates still still come for those it's easier to justify when you're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year yeah. probably <laughs> and in their scenario they're also and, and this it's probably not as easy as it sounds but they're probably using something like unity so that layer's mostly abstracted out from them anyway. Yeah. But when you're when you're making hundreds of million dollars and it's like, yeah, it's a real pain in the butt to support iOS 8, but, you know, that's $3 million of that $100 million. And it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I wish I was in that boat. That would be cool. <laughs> yeah, if the, the amount of money that it costs to support that older version is a small fraction of what you're going to take in from in revenue from that version, then, then it's worth it. But yeah, for and most got, indies, it's not that case. Yeah. And when, when you are the development team and the testing team, and you have fairly limited time and resources to actually test and support that many versions of the platform, it's, it's asking a lot. But if you're super selling, you're worth maybe hundreds, if not billions of dollars, then yeah. Then you're going to yeah. think twice. Yeah, you've got you've got the resources to to test on every platform. Oh, it does get harder and harder to find devices that you can use for testing. You might yeah. end up having to go to eBay to get that iOS 8.03 device. Yeah, I really wish they let us load old versions <laughs> on our phones. Yeah, even if it was like some sort of like development hack, the 
you know, if it's enabled for development, then you can then do the update. Maybe do the authentication of the, of the signing only if it's in development mode. Yeah, jailbreakers would love that, though. That's yeah. probably what their reasoning is. Yeah, probably in large part. Although I'm still not sure what the downside to that is. I don't quite understand. Like, if you're Apple and you've got some people on old versions, is it like the support burden of these people running iOS 8 that's jailbroken? Or I suspect it has more to do with the vulnerabilities and the security of the platform. So, yeah, but those yeah. people who stay on that old version already are, you know, stuck on that old version. And a lot of times these jailbreak guys will patch whatever vulnerability they use. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, I mean, you could get into situations like with the FBI. They could, you know, downgrade a phone to a previous version that has a vulnerability and use that to, to compromise it. Well, when you, you do something like that, you would lose your data, probably. I think that's what happens Maybe. now. I don't think you can, well, you can't go down period right now, but like if right. you could always do a restore during, you know, beta times, even though they say you're not yeah. supposed to, you could always restore yeah. to like the current release version normally and be fine, but you lose yeah, all your if, data. If the data got wiped, then yeah, but I mean, you're probably not really risking a whole lot. So, all right. So what else do we have this week? Well, uh, we've, we've all, or at least a couple of us have played around with this new DirecTV Now stuff. You, you want to talk about that stuff at all? Yeah, yeah, we can kind of touch on it. It kind of goes hand in hand with this uh, latest iOS 10 tvOS update that supports the TV app and single sign-on for TV providers. So, you know, all these third-party apps that have content, they're kind of like these own little island. And the TV app is intended to consolidate that into kind of one place to access all your content and, and see what's new. And single sign-on uh, is to kind of deal with the fact that a lot of these third-party apps require you to sign in to your TV provider in order to get access to the, the premium content. So, so is that something that's invitation-only to these different networks, or did they release a, this an is, actual It's not SDK? to networks. It's not to networks. It's to TV providers. So, like, your... Time Warner Cable, your Slim TV, your oh, okay. Dish or whatever. It's it's kind of like a unified uh, TV Anywhere platform. It, it basically says, okay, I'm going to log in with my cable username and password, and then it'll automatically download all those apps that are available for it and let you connect with it. So there is something I think that the uh, networks have to do to support that in general. Yeah, I think the, the apps have to be have to enable the ability for that TV app to consume its content and to leverage the single sign-on. But it does appear to be invite-only, and there's like a specific some contract that you need to be able to provide data and stuff like that because they they use the they they share the data somehow back and forth um, with the networks too for use in the the TV app, so you know what you watched recently and all this stuff, so... And I mean, it seems like a really cool experiment or experience if all of the stuff that you use has it enabled. I just noticed in Beta 6 they doubled, it looks like, the amount of TV providers, but DirecTV Now does not appear to be there yet. <laughs> yeah. Oddly enough, DirecTV's there, but DirecTV Now is a separate service with a separate account. 
uh, but it's it's one of the latest uh, streaming only cable services that um, that support the cable cutters in a more legitimate fashion. And there's a few others out there like Sing, Sling TV and PlayStation View. Although there's no TV provider for PlayStation View, Sling TV does have one. And right now varies greatly from app to app what is supported. So there's, I think there's a couple apps that support PlayStation View as a provider and some that support Sling. Oh yeah, so that's that's using the TV Anywhere platform. So if you download the app and you say, I want to sign in, when you go when you do it that way, that is, I, I think the some media consortium made this thing called TV Anywhere, which is basically lets you log in with your cable account on each individual app. And Apple's thing is different in that it lets you log in one time and then you get access everywhere. Yeah. And kind of the important importance of having the ability to log into those apps is a lot of those newer uh, solutions like Sling TV and PlayStation View, you know, they're primarily focused on live TV and they don't have quite the, the backlog of content on demand, but something like BBC America or HBO Go has pretty much their entire catalog available on demand. Yeah, and I think, especially with DirecTV now, it seems like, you know, originally I was like, oh, they just announced this new TV version and they announced DirecTV now is coming. So maybe they're like tied together and it's going to be like this ultimate um, whatever, you know, Steve Jobs had cooked up for what the ideal TV platform would be. But turns out they just happen to be around the same time and DirecTV now is having some growing pains. But I I think it'll it looks like it's going to get a lot better. Uh, It's still very immature. And uh, you can't, like I said, a lot of a lot of third-party providers or apps don't support it as a provider yet. Hopefully, that'll change. Well, ideally, there would just be a TV provider in for Apple that would let you get all of them. But yeah, yeah, I would take some of the individual apps doing it as well. Um, but yeah, Which, there have yeah. been some issues this week. Like, did you ever run into the issue, Alex, where it would think you were logged into multiple devices when? really something just got messed up and it thought you were trying to log in three times on the same device. I haven't run into that, but I haven't really used it a whole lot. I, I signed up for it. I did the three months and skipped the trial and thinking it was a zero risk because you can cancel at any time. And if you sign up for three months, you get a free Apple TV, uh, which is more expensive than the cost of the three months of service. So it seemed like a no brainer. Yeah, I did um, the same thing. Um, I'm seeing, we'll see how it is in three months from now. But the, the initial deal is, seems like whenever that expires, it won't be as compelling of an offering. But you basically get like the highest level package for the lowest cost of any of their packages. Yeah. Uh, if you sign up from now until whenever that, that deal is, is done. So if you want a free Apple TV, do that and try it out. Well, not a free Apple TV. If you want a discounted Apple TV, Sign up for Sling and, you know, in three months, maybe cancel it if you don't want it. But yeah. you mean DirecTV now? Yes. What what Alex said. <laughs> Sign up for uh, DirecTV now. Same time I tried Apple the TV. I tried the PlayStation View seven day trial. And that, I felt like that had a slightly cleaner experience and it had it has the cloud DVR. So shows that you watch it will automatically record in quotes for you make available. And it makes it available the same day. 
So you don't even have to wait till the next day. To... Right after the show started, right? I don't, probably, yeah. And, you know, since it's already kind of doing live TV, if not right at, after it started, then probably right after it's ended. Yeah, the main shortcomings right now, I'd say, of DirecTV now are the lack of of a CBS and the, the live DVR feature, in addition to some technical issues. Um, and hopefully they'll they'll figure most of that stuff out, get a deal with CBS, but you still don't get live content on your local networks or NFL games. Um, right. So it's probably still useful to get an old-fashioned TV tuner card, and there's a awesome app for Apple TV. I think we've talked about it before called Channels. that lets you your local TV content. So I've been using that and I, I'll keep using that for the foreseeable future. And PlayStation View actually does have CBS. If in the cases where the network owns the local affiliate, so you get the local channel, but if they don't own the local affiliate, then it's not available in your area. Right. I and think I, I think in, in Cincinnati, they only have CBS live. I think all the other channels are not owned by their, their parent company. Yeah, and I think all the NBC channels, which includes uh, quite a few, those aren't technically available for streaming on mobile with DirecTV now. That was weird. So it's listed as part of the service, but not on technically not on a, a Apple platform, only on the browser. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird how all these these rights work out, but hopefully some of this stuff gets renegotiated when deals are up, and it's not as is crazy. I think pretty much if you want the if you want the local TV streaming live right now, unless you live in like New York or Chicago or maybe LA, I think those are like the three main cities where NBC owns the NBC affiliate there and CBS and Fox and ABC all own the their local affiliates. So, if you're not in one of those big cities, then don't expect live TV. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate that it's all very segmented and everything's like an independent negotiation. Yeah, you know, I kind of wish that Apple had bought Time Warner so they could have the rights to the content. But even then, there would probably still be challenges. Yeah, there's so all kinds of challenges. Hopefully, this you know all these new services will demonstrate that there's a market for it, and the networks can still make money from the cord cutters if they provide make it easy for them. Yeah, for me personally, I don't see the, the the great big hype or the, the need to use any of those services like the PlayStation View or DirecTV now because I have enough content to watch of just Netflix and Amazon and the occasional okay. iTunes subscription season pass. Yeah, I've got like three or four different services and if you add them all up I'm probably I'm probably paying more for the independent services than I am for cable or would for cable. Minus the hardware. And, and the landscape is definitely changing. More original content coming from some of these services like Netflix and Hulu and, and others. Uh, even Apple's th planning some original content. But at the same time, Hulu seems to be losing content. Like CW uh, left Hulu and. Although I'm, like I'm fairly happy with how CW's worked out because they let you just stream it whenever without uh, logging into your cable company at all, which is yeah. kind of crazy. Right now, the vast majority of the commercials are commercials for their own shows, which is interesting. But, you know, they so they're not even getting that much in ad revenue. But I assume they're trying to build up an audience. 
Yeah, I've seen one or two other ad types from them. That app is decent, but it, it definitely needs some work. Yeah. You also have um, both Hulu and YouTube are negotiating deals. And I think CBS inked a deal. I think it was CBS inked a deal with YouTube. Uh, so, you know, the competition is going to continue to increase, which is going to help fortify some of these islands of data, I think. Uh, so I don't think we'll ever see a point where you've got one service where you can get access to all your data, but um, hopefully it'll get better. Well, if anything, I, I, I'm guessing a lot of these will just kind of fall out of favor and people won't want the content on there because it's such a pain compared to other things. I'm guessing that's going to be our best bet. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we'll ever see the true a la carte model that I think a lot of people would like. And buying the individual season passes for specific shows gets too expensive too fast. Right. But then then again, my time is not worth all the all of those season passes either. Yeah. And that's kind of why I was excited about DirecTV Now and PlayStation View is, you know, presumably at some point they will be treated as a TV provider and I can get access to the content in the other apps. I wouldn't necessarily have to use their app, but as long as I can get access to the content without having to buy it separately, I would be happy. Well, in the spirit of saving your time, Sam, I think that's about all the time we have left this week. Uh, so why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Corder on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo, and the podcast is at Shared Inst. Uh, join us in our Slack uh, by going to chat.sharedinstance.com for an invite, and we'll see you guys soon. Cool. See you. Later.